Well, now let's get our Bibles and let's go to the book of Mark together. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. You know, God is kind to give us people in our lives for our encouragement and our training and fellowship, whether that be parents or teachers or pastors or friends, those relationships are meant to be a blessing from God. But nobody's perfect. And that includes the people in our lives who have helped train us or even now uh, want to love on us and encourage us. That even the most well-intentioned person can get it wrong. An example of that, uh, years ago there were two students, two boys, about 10 years apart in age. And they lived several hundred miles from each other, but otherwise had pretty similar backgrounds and similar family life. The time of the school year came when report cards were handed out, and the younger boy received this assessment. Religious instruction adequate, freehand drawing good, moral conduct very satisfactory. But the older boy's report card was a little different. His teacher summarized it this way. It doesn't matter what he does, he will never amount to anything. The older boy's report card was much different, wasn't it? The younger guy with the glowing report card happened to be Adolf Hitler. The older boy who would never amount to anything, that was Albert Einstein. Apparently, their teachers got them very wrong. Words are powerful things, even when they're dead wrong. Words spoken can find a deep place in our hearts and affect us, whether they're spoken for encouragement or spoken to discourage, whether those words come from someone we love and respect or whether they come from people we know that don't care what happens to us. Words can wound, and we all know what that feels like. You may be sitting here this morning and immediately things come to your mind, or you're still affected by something that was said about you or even said to you. The good news is there's only one who has the authority to define who you are, and that's the one who made you. He's the only one. What God says about you is what's true. He says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says he made you in his image and likeness. He has given you purpose for your life. And God so loved you that he sent his son to die for your sins. That's who you are because that's who Jesus is. But this morning we're going to explore something else in this, that before Jesus died, he first lived right? He lived for our encouragement and our example. He lived to fulfill the law. He lived that we would know him and trust in him and find our identity in him. This morning, we're going to see from our text the clear, secure identity that Jesus knew of himself, that even though he was maligned by his enemies 
and misunderstood by his own family, Jesus knew his identity as Messiah. And nothing could shake that from him. And aren't we glad of that? Let's read this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and then we're going to pray and ask for the Lord to help us. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they, were, or they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. And we are thankful that in a world that is groping for identity in all the wrong places, We are thankful that you, Jesus, know exactly who you are. And because of that, those who trust in you, we can know exactly who we are. This morning, Lord, help us to see you afresh today, Jesus, and give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Whenever we read a good book or watch a good movie, Sometimes the author or the director, they will employ this kind of uh, editing deal where they start with one scene and they don't bring resolution to it. They kind of introduce a second scene and then later on they come back to the first scene. And one of the reasons they do that, it can make it kind of hard to follow the plot, but it's really helpful when done right because it can show connection between two things that previously looked disconnected. That's what's going on in our text today that the 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 author mark he does that quite often in his book to the point that he's got his own phrase that theologians have have given it they call it a markin sandwich doesn't sound very appetizing but they they call it a markin sandwich so he starts with a story he interrupts it with a second story and then he comes back with the first story and yet somehow in a beautiful way it comes together and shows connectivity 
In our text today, it is exactly that, a mark and sandwich. So the bread, the top layer, is Jesus' family saying he's gone crazy. Then in the middle, we see Jesus' enemies saying he's possessed. And then that last piece of bread is coming back to his family, and we see Jesus respond to them. So we're meant to see the connection here, primarily who is Jesus? That's the question Mark has been answering all through this book. And this morning, we are drawn to his identity as Messiah, even when it comes to facing his opponents and being accused and slandered. Jesus knows who he is. The first thing we see is Jesus was misunderstood by his family. Now, if you recall from last week, Jesus was up on the mountain with his disciples and being with them so that he could send them. So there was this beautiful, intimate, powerful moment on the mountain with the small group of people. And they come down from the mountain, and they're making their way back to Peter's house. Remember, that's where the guy was healed when he came through the roof. They were at Peter's house. Now they're going back there. They're going to have a nice, quiet dinner. But Jesus and his reputation has already spread so that anytime he shows his face in public, a crowd just immediately gathers. And that happens again. They're barely even able to make it back to Peter's house. And they're not even able to eat because the crowd has so packed in wanting to see and touch Jesus. Now about 20 miles away, so about half a day's walking distance, is in Nazareth is Jesus' mother, and his brothers and sisters. They hear about what's going on. We're not told exactly what they hear, but it's very likely all of the above. They hear that that Jesus is having run-ins with very powerful religious leaders, and they're concerned. They hear that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. They're hearing now that mobs of people are constantly around him, and so they're concerned. That's to put it mildly. Now, we would stop and say, well, with all that Mary knew and all that Jesus' family knew, shouldn't they have known him the best? Wouldn't they have heard those things and responded with, praise God, Jesus is doing exactly what he's called to do. But that's not how they responded. Look at verse 21 again. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family said, this has gone too far. We got to go get him. Not just go talk sense into him. We've got to go and physically restrain him and bring him back home to Nazareth. He's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. We need to go rescue Jesus. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? We've got to go save the Savior. He needs our help. Even though they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. Back back to Mary. My mind goes there. How could Mary, if she thought that, how, how could she have thought that? Didn't she remember? I mean, the angel appeared to her. Oh, by the way, God's going to put a baby in your womb, Mary. And you're going to call him Jesus. And he's going to save his people from their sins. Of course, Mary remembered those things. And the Bible doesn't say this, but, but I want to give Mary, uh, extend her some grace. Let's say she's more of a concerned mom, not so much an unbeliever. I mean, after all, Mary is hearing about very powerful people 
hating her son, and she knows what that could lead to. So she's probably concerned for his safety. And then like any mom, she hears he's not eating. Oh, she's going to come running, right? So there's concern. I think that's fair to say. There's concern on Mary's part. But now Jesus' siblings, particularly his brothers, they're a different story. I just imagine these guys growing up around Jesus, and if there's any connection or any familiarity with our families, here's Jesus, the perfect one, literally. Never said anything wrong, never did anything wrong, always says the right thing, always does the right thing. And I don't know if this happened, but I certainly assume that Joseph or Mary at some point, sometime would be looking at Jesus and they would look at their others and say, why can't you be more like him? (laughs) They couldn't. It was impossible. And so I just picture Jesus's siblings already knowing the difficulty of being brought up in that home. Maybe there was bitterness. I don't know. But we do know this. The Bible tells us Jesus' own siblings did not believe he was the son of God in the beginning. We're told that during one of the big Jewish festivals and the religious leaders were looking for Jesus in order to kill him, his brothers said in almost a mocking tone, Jesus, why are you hiding? Get out, get out in the world. Let everybody see you. Tell everybody who you are. After all, you need to let the world see you, don't you? And the Gospel of John records these words. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, that had to hurt. I mean, Jesus had emotions like us. He loved his family, so I'm sure this was painful. I think that's important to pause and consider Because it's too easy to forget that Jesus was not only fully God, he was fully man as well. The Bible says, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Jesus had emotions like you and I feel. Which is a wonderful thing for us because that means he is able to sympathize with us, not just from a distance. But he knows the hurts firsthand that you and I go through. He knows what it is to be rejected, to be misunderstood, to be falsely accused, especially by the people he loved. So Jesus loved his family perfectly, but he did not let his family define who he was, what they thought of him. Jesus knew who he was and what he was called to do, even though his own family didn't. And again, I think this is a beautiful opportunity just to stop and drink a cool glass of encouragement from this text. You and I, if you've ever been rejected, if you've ever been made fun of, when you share the gospel, particularly with family members, isn't it true family members can be the hardest ones to witness to? Can cause the most anxiety? And usually it feels like the hardest to get through to. If you've ever been kept on the outside, if you've ever had relational strain with family members because of the gospel, take heart. Jesus did too. If you ever had people call you crazy because of what you believe in Scripture, 
that you actually believe the Bible, that you, you actually want to follow Jesus, take heart. Jesus knows that rejection firsthand. And not only does he know it, but he invites us to bring those pains to him because he heals those wounds. He not only reminds us of the love he has for us and who we are in him, but Jesus is able to give us an overflowing abundance of love for those who don't seem to love us back. He's able to give us patience and grace in continuing to love family members who are not following Christ, reminding us there was a time we didn't follow Christ. He was patient with us. And so God can not only heal those wounds that have been inflicted by your family members, but God can also give you love for them. Now, we're going to leave that piece of bread for just a minute. We're going to go deeper in the sandwich here. Mark takes us to a completely different scene. We went from Jesus' family, talking about how he's crazy. Now, Jesus is being slandered by his enemies. In Nazareth, while mom and brothers are packing up to come see Jesus... The religious leaders come down from Jerusalem. Everybody's converging on Jesus in Capernaum. They come down from Jerusalem. They get there first, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Well, that escalated quickly. Jesus goes from having family members, or at least we're seeing and hearing them say, Jesus is crazy. Now the religious leaders take it a step further and say, no, he's, he's possessed. And that name, Beelzebul, that's, it means prince of demons. It means the one over all the rest of the demons. So they weren't saying Jesus is simply possessed by a demon. They're saying Jesus is in league with Satan himself. You can see through the book of Mark how these attacks these, from the religious leaders, they're ramping up, aren't they? They're getting more bold, more aggressive. Before, it was thinking and whispering, who is this and why is he talking this way? Now it's gone from speculation to accusation. But notice in their accusation, they're actually admitting Jesus does miracles. They're not saying he doesn't cast out demons. They're saying, oh, yeah, he's casting out demons. It must be by the devil himself he's doing it. Because we're the godly people and we don't like him, so he must be of the devil. And so in that exchange, Jesus doesn't tell them to leave Peter's house. This is a private residence. They could have all looked at, him, looked at the scribes and said, uh, we'll see you guys back in Jerusalem later on. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. In, in fact, he invites them in. He tells them to come near through the crowd so he can talk to them. Look at the end of verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. It seems that Jesus is using simple logic. And this comes across as just kind of a calm exchange. He's showing them the emptiness of their argument. If the devil is casting out the devil, then the devil's going to destroy himself. So that's not the case. They're illogical. They're irrational in their reasoning. 
So whatever they believed about Jesus, Jesus was showing them they're just simply not making any sense. And then Jesus uses almost a parable, an analogy, verse 27. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is using an example of somebody breaking into a home. Now, since they're in Peter's home, I just picture this happening. Jesus loved to use object lessons from things around him. I just picture Jesus putting his arm around Peter and looking at the religious leaders and saying, if somebody's going to break into this guy's house, they better tie up this guy because he's going to take care of them if they don't. And then I see Jesus moving away from Peter and then expounding on what he's actually meaning because the strong man that Jesus is talking about is not really Peter. It's the devil. Jesus is saying, if you're going to take down the devil's kingdom, you better be more powerful than the devil first. Now, Jesus is showing themselves. He's identifying himself once again as Messiah the conquering anointed one from God, who is God. This role is extremely important for us to see, for these people to see in this moment. The very identity the religious leaders refused to see. Those who knew the Old Testament best were were seemingly forgetting the story of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve giving up that perfect relationship with God in order to invite sin into the world. And that's exactly what they did. And it wasn't just, oops, we made a mistake. Because Adam and Eve sinned, they welcomed destruction into God's perfect creation. They put all humanity into captivity of the devil. Captive in our own sin. Not just them, but every person born after them. That gives us the backdrop of what the Messiah came to do. And Jesus is confirming it here. Jesus came to break in to the darkness, to plunder the devil's house. Jesus came to overpower the strong man, to bind up the devil, tie him up, restrict him, and to rescue those who the devil had enslaved. Jesus is fulfilling the promise God gave through the prophet Isaiah that reads this way. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Who are the captives? God's people. Who is is the one that had us bound? The devil. How did he bind us? In our sin. And how would we be rescued? Someone stronger than the devil would come and break in and bind up the devil and set us free. That's what Jesus has done for us. 1 John 3.8 makes this clear. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. With that being Jesus' mission and his purpose, 
Jesus, God in the flesh, holy, spotless, perfect. Imagine the level of offense and insult and blasphemy that these religious leaders had just leveled toward the Son of God. Jesus, I picture him going from patiently teaching in parables to leaning in closely to these religious leaders that he just brought in to face. And he says, truly I say to you, another way is saying, I'm going to tell you something and you better not forget it. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. And then Mark gives the reasoning, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Feel the tension of that moment. Feel the gravity of those words Jesus just said. The one who would die for the sins of man looks at the religious people of his day. And if we're being generous, he says, be careful. You are playing with fire, literally. You are ascribing what is holy. You're ascribing to the devil. And you are closer to hell right now than you know. That's the essence of what Jesus is telling these very religious, very pious people. You are closer to hell than you know. We're not told of a response they give. I imagine they gave none. I imagine an awkward silence in this crowded house. In fact, we don't hear from religious leaders for the next few chapters. They've been publicly shamed. They've been exposed. And oh, I bet their hatred for Jesus and their determination to kill him grew and multiplied that very day. Now in this moment, in this sobering, serious moment, we're probably all thinking the question, what, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And have I committed that sin? To blaspheme means to slander or profane what is holy what is sacred, to take what is of God and attribute it to what is of the devil. Now, we've already seen Jesus' opponents admitted he did miracles. They knew there was supernatural work before them. That could not be denied. What they did deny was that Jesus got his power from God because he is God. They instead attributed the Holy Spirit's work to the work of the devil. So in essence, instead of giving God the glory, they were glorifying Satan. Pastor and author Richard Phillips puts it this way concerning the unforgivable sin. Someone who knows who Jesus is, who realizes that his work is by the Holy Spirit, and yet so refuses to believe that he actually ascribes the Spirit's work to the devil, cannot possibly be saved. Why? Because that person is not just ignorant, but they willfully 
knowingly reject Jesus as Messiah, as proved by the Holy Spirit. So this passage describes not someone who, in a fit of anger or temptation, commits blasphemy, but someone who refuses to believe on Jesus as the Messiah, even when he recognizes the Holy Spirit at work. So, if you have been in your life concerned or are now, you're worried, you're concerned, asking, have I ever committed the unforgivable sin? I would suggest to you that that worry, that concern, that care, that fear is evidence you have not. Because someone who has committed the unforgivable sin, they're not wanting to repent. There's no desire for repentance. If you desire repentance, if there's a fear of God connected to that, that shows the Holy Spirit at work in you. So if you've truly trusted in Christ, here's the plain answer. If you've truly trusted in Christ as Savior, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. He has washed away your sin. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, that means Jesus has kicked in the door of the devil and he has freed you from the devil's enslavement. And so now you are forgiven and you are free. See that today and celebrate that. Let that cause us to to see his love, his forgiveness, his mercy when we don't deserve it. And, And let that fuel our worship and our praise. Let that cause us to give God glory. And yet as we walk away from that narrative, let us not walk away from the seriousness and the holiness of our God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Let us not neglect that. And so now Jesus, he gives that stern warning to the religious opponents. We don't hear anything else from them. And Mark comes along and he finishes up the sandwich with that piece of bread reminding us about what happens to Jesus' family. And this is where we get to see Jesus welcome us as his own. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Notice this, this picture is opposite of what we would expect. Family members are outside. The crowd is on the inside. This this is opposite from what we would expect to see. And when Jesus got this message from the outside, making its way through the crowd, and he got word, verse 33, he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, was was Jesus dissing on his mom? Was he insulting his brothers? No. Jesus is showing the distinction between those who thought they had claim on him versus those whom Jesus has claimed for his own. Jesus knew why his family was there, and it was not for a polite visit. It was to physically take him home because they thought he lost his mind. How ironic. Jesus just got finished talking about binding and seizing the devil. And here are his own family members trying to seize and bind him. So Jesus makes it clear. 
No one has claim on him. No human relationship can claim to have control over him. He was born of woman, but he belonged to God. He walked in flesh and blood, but he is God in the flesh. He came not to be bound, but he came to do the binding, to bind up the enemy and to set God's people free. And that's exactly what he did. So when they said his mothers and brothers wanted to see him, he looks at the people around and probably pointing directly to the 12 disciples and saying, these are my mother and brothers. This is my family. The ones who do the will of God, that's family to me. In essence, he's saying people who are related to me biologically, they come in second place to those who I'm connected with spiritually. That's true for every Christian, isn't it? Every one of us, we have blood relatives who we love and and who we respect. But if they're not believers, you have a deeper connection with people in this room who don't share your DNA, but do share your faith. The people you're going to spend eternity with in heaven Those are the people who are your true family, those who follow Christ. James Edwards says this, There are only two kinds of people, those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. Discipleship depends on being in Jesus' presence and doing God's will. Anyone can be an insider who sits at Jesus' feet and does the will of his Father. And no one can be an insider who does not. You and I are family. Not because of what we have in common in everyday life, but because of who we have in common, and that is Jesus. And I saw a beautiful picture of that just yesterday. Some of you were at Merle Boyk's funeral, supporting Jennifer, loving her. People who have been praying for this family, most of you, many of you probably never met Merle. A few of you may not really know Jennifer, but you know her enough to know she's a sister in the Lord. You were supporting, you were loving, and you were praying and taking meals. And it's not a statement about anyone who is biologically related to Jennifer, but it's just a beautiful picture that in a time of need, when Christians gather around one another, And we're reminding each other of the hope that we have together. Church, we're family. It doesn't mean we'll we'll get to spend this life together in, in, in every moment, but it means that we are the ones who are bound together in Christ in a beautiful way. We are bound to him and therefore bound to one another. And that binding is not the restrictive kind of binding. It's the freeing kind. We have one another because together we have Christ. Now, what about Jesus' brothers? Were they just a lost cause? No. We know that God does eventually change their hearts. We know that after Jesus died and resurrected that they did believe. In fact, we know specifically Jesus' brother James became one of the most influential and respected leaders in the New Testament church. He wrote the book of James, and he was even martyred for his faith in Christ. 
Knowing that even adds more impact to James's words that he would write about Jesus later. He doesn't say, Jesus, my brother, but he says, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James not only came to know Christ, but he came to die for Christ. Now that should encourage us today. It should encourage us that when we struggle sharing the faith with our family members and we just seem to be getting nowhere and it seems like we're just hitting a brick wall, remember Jesus, the perfect witness for most of his life, they still didn't believe in his own family. But it should also encourage us to remind us of this, the hardest heart the roughest relative you've got is no match for God's mercy. They can't run too far that God's grace can't reach them. You keep loving them. You keep sharing the gospel, planting seeds, serving them. They may say horrible things to you that no one wants to hear, but let that be practice to not let whatever other people say about us influence who we are in Christ. Because the world's going to hate you because they hated Jesus first. And sometimes that'll be our own family members. Don't get discouraged. Keep on sharing the gospel. God will use you to plant seeds in ways that you cannot see and you may not see in your lifetime. But God is faithful. Even though Jesus was maligned by his enemies and misunderstood by his family, he stayed true to his identity as Messiah, defeating the devil and freeing God's people. And I close with this quote this morning from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Jesus' family called him crazy. His opponents called him the devil. Who do you say Jesus is? May we call him Lord and God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have gathered this morning for many reasons, but the chief of which is to know you more and to worship you. And this morning, your word is that gift that has stirred our hearts, has sobered us and challenged us and awakened us and encouraged us. I pray for the result would be just that, that we would know you more, that we would worship you more fully. And as we know who we are in you, that we would be your witnesses. For you are Lord and God. Amen.